Hello, and welcome again to the Anesthesia Compass podcast. This is Mike Dobson. There are a number of different ways of keeping in touch with what's going on in the developing world. One very good one is to join the World Anesthesia Society. Details of how to do this you'll find on their website and also on their Facebook page. I'm afraid I'm not a Facebook person, but the amount and variety of interesting world anesthesia materials there almost persuades me to join Facebook. Almost. As well as supporting our colleagues overseas, World Anesthesia produces an excellent regular newsletter to keep you informed. So do think about joining. This week I'm having a conversation with a British colleague, Dr. Karen Layden, who is a consultant anesthetist in Northampton. And she's been on missions in a remote area of North Ghana, where they've been providing hospital care in a place where there has been no existing hospital. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a bit about the background of, of what you've been doing, uh, what's been achieved so far on the missions that have happened? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so there's quite a complicated uh, backstory to um, these missions and also uh, where this project is going next. Um, and it's really bound up very strongly in the life of um, Dr. David uh, Mensah. Um, the project is based in uh, northern Ghana, a place called Carpenter, about halfway between Kumasi and the northern border. Um, and it would be fair to say that the northern part of Ghana has been generally more neglected over a period of time. Most power and influence exists on the coast and in the south. Um, David Mensah grew up um, with a fairly harsh tribal life in northern Ghana um, and lost his father early in life um, to complications of an inguinal hernia. Um, he was essentially um, driven out of his uh, tribal life um, and ended up um, pretty much as a street child um, in Tamale. Uh, but from there, he worked his way up to um, getting an education um, and starting with Friends, a development organization way back in the sort of 1960s. And as part of that, um, he was sponsored to go to Canada um, to a Bible college uh, to in Ontario, what's called the Ontario Bible College at the time. Um, but he stayed in Canada and completed a PhD at St. Michael's College uh, in Toronto. He met and married a Canadian, um, Brenda uh, Paisley, um, and they had uh, three daughters. He then came back to the same area of Ghana that he'd been brought up um, to lead the development organization that they'd started some decades before. Um, and he has been the, it has been a long-term project involving many different elements of um, development. Uh, one of his observations was that many of the missionaries who came out were very interested in making converts, but less interested in the physical well-being of uh, the people. Um, so this project has involved over decades work on the water supply, digging wells, uh, education, building schools, roads, communications, power supply, uh, and particularly developing agriculture. Um, and all along, the um, it's called the Northern Empowerment Association, or NEA, and all along they've aimed to be um, self-sufficient. So 
a lot of the projects have been um, agricultural to uh, raise money and to develop the area. So, for instance, the um, the organisation provides all the shea butter butter for the body shop, for instance, um, and fingerlings, uh, little fish for most of Ghana, as well as mushrooms and other um, projects. So health is sort of one of uh, many arms of this um, organisation. And in fact, um, Dr. Mensah spends a lot of his time now on peace projects. So um, promoting peace between the various different uh, tribes in the area, um, because without peace, you can have no development. So the, the link with Canada um, is where the medical side came in. So when they wanted to develop the medical side, um, it was the Canadians they turned to. And the main person there has been Jennifer Wilson. And they started off uh, in a relatively small way, bringing out groups of physicians from Canada uh, to um, provide some healthcare uh, once a year uh, in on a two week sort of uh, program. Uh, that usually included to begin with um, ophthalmology and um, dental, um, as well as general physicians. And they spent a lot of time on maternity care, doing um, sort of outreach work and training local people, um, and have managed to get a really good reduction in neonatal mortality over the years. The surgical side, which is where I come in more, um, started about um, 10 years ago with a chance meeting on an aeroplane um, between um, a member of Hernia International and um, uh, Jennifer Wilson, who was coming out for one of the missions. Um, and from there, uh, there's been an added in surgical component to the annual two-week missions, um, primarily focusing on hernia repair, because there is a high rate of um, hernias and hernia complications uh, in the area. The Difficulties of this are that um, there is no hospital in the um, area that we go to. Uh, there is a, a, a sort of compound, which is where all of the um, empowerment association activities are run from, uh, which has some good buildings and catering facilities, accommodation and so on. Um, and lots of different uh, disciplines um, work from there at various times. When we've been out for the two weeks, we've taken over the entire compound and turned it into a mini hospital stroke medical facility um, with three operating theatres, operating theatres in the widest sense of the word. Um, so gradually equipment has been taken out and left. So each time you go out, you're picking up equipment that's been there for 50, 50 weeks um, and stored in that time. Um, so each time um, the patients have been organized and um, uh, collected from one mission to the next um, and the NEA local staff are the ones who take the information out to the local villages and organize the transport for the patients to come in at the right time um, for the operations. Um, and so our bit of it has concentrated on delivering so far the, um, as many hernia repairs as we safely can in the time available. Um, in the last uh, mission, which was in 2019, uh, we, uh, as a mission as a whole, including the, the eyes and everything else, we saw 5,738 patients. Um, 
and did 290 hernia repairs. More than 3,000 have been done over the sort of 10 years or so the project's been running. I've only been involved for the last um, couple of years, but I've come in, in at an exciting time because as a culmination of all this um, development work and health work that's happened over decades, um, a new hospital is now being built uh, in Carpenter. In fact, we saw the walls going up when we were there in the autumn of 2019. It, it's planned to be a, um, bed for, a 50 bed hospital. Um, and I've been asked to be the anesthesia advisor for the hospital which is a slightly daunting prospect. And so I've been trying hard to think how best uh, I can support the project, both now and going forward. And particularly at the moment, um, what kind of equipment we should be uh, providing. It's a very different situation, isn't it? Moving from a mission where you're there for a fortnight and probably take nearly everything with you to a static hospital that's going to be uh, operating 50 week, 52 weeks a year. What, what are some of the areas that you've had to think about in, in making that change? Yeah, that's exactly the case. Um, when we were going out just for the two weeks and taking everything pretty much with us, um, we tried not to rely too much on the, on the equipment that's already there because as I said, it had been stored in possibly not ideal conditions for the rest of the year in between. Um, but to move to a hospital that's going to be working all year round, that is a very different um, prospect. And the big issues are um, really sustainability, that we want the, the equipment that we provide or to be working properly in another 10 years time and more. Um, the electricity supply is precarious. Um, at the moment, we had lots of um, minor outages while we were there. There is backup generator um, on the compound, but it, I don't imagine it would be big enough to supply a whole new hospital. Um, I know there are plans for um, a photovoltaic array potentially, um, but I don't know how far advanced those are. Um, oxygen supply is another issue. Um, we used, uh, there was one oxygen concentrator already there. We took one out with us last time we went. Um, and we had cylinders, some big cylinders, uh, but they had to come from four hours away. Uh, so <laughs> you didn't want to be depending on them too much because <laughs> it was expensive to get them um, and so on. And um, we think we need to supply a kit that's going to be familiar to the people that are going to be using it um, and also um, that can be repaired locally. Um, and ideally some standardization so there's not too many different kinds of kit for people to understand and use safely. There are gonna be four operating theaters um, and that's about as much as I know about them. Um, I'm assuming that we're gonna have potentially one will be orthopedics or trauma, perhaps one for obstetrics um, and emergencies or one each. Um, and my initial thoughts were that we should look to getting um, to using the Gloucester Vent Helix anesthesia machine. So that's an anesthetic drawer over system um, with a concentrator um, and ventilator included, um, which can operate 
uh, with just an electricity supply without piped oxygen or anything else like that. Um, but this was really why I came to Mike <laughs> to get more advice <laughs> on this area. So, well, if I can just put in a, 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 an unscripted comment about infrastructure. Um, last week's uh, podcast uh, featured Bill Wright uh, from PowerQuest uh, Worldwide, and uh, their organization has a great deal of experience in installing and giving advice on your electricity and your gas supplies and that sort of thing. So I think getting in touch with them would be a really wise thing to do because uh, whatever your plans are at the moment, uh, they will be able to compare them with 10 other hospitals uh, to see whether uh, you're actually going to have what, you, what you'd like to have. Um, in terms of, of the machines, I, I entirely agree that, that, that the ones you've uh, uh, mentioned just now are excellent and it's great to standardize. Um, but I have a couple more basic questions to ask. Um, do you know what the projected caseload for the hospital is going to be? Because it might be rather different over 52 weeks than with patients who come specifically for a two week camp. Yes, I think it will be very different. Um, I mean, the assumptions that the building of the hospital were made on um, were that it would have 50 beds to serve a population of 100,000 people. Uh, it was estimated about 47,000 patient visits a year, um, plus 18,000 to accident and emergency, and between 1,000 and 3,000 operations per year. Now, I don't know exactly what those estimates were based on, um, and I don't know, to, no, don't know whether they will um, survive um, meeting with reality. <laughs> Um, I think we'll have to have to wait and see, I think. Certainly with the missions that we did, some patients came from far and wide. So I suspect if we create a good facility, um, we may well have patients from quite some distance. Yeah. Um, the classification of your theatres, I think, will probably need to be fairly flexible uh, because those categories are the sort of categories that we'd recognise in the UK. Uh, but in many uh, rural areas, nearly everything is going to be an emergency of one sort or another. It'll either be trauma or emergency obstetrics uh, or children with burns who in turn might be infected. So do they go in the uh, septic theatre? Do they go in the paediatric theatre or do they go in the emergency theatre? Um, those, those are things that you'll sort out as, as time goes by. And I suspect that one or more of your theatres, depending on your staffing, might not get used very much. Uh, and the danger then is, is that obviously equipment put in there and not used may well degenerate, as you found even, even over from one year to the next. Um, what about the age spectrum of the patients? Well, the population is fairly young, so I would anticipate there would be a lot of children um, potentially involved, particularly uh, trauma and, as you mentioned, burns, um, with a lot of open cooking fires and the like. Um, th that's certainly a risk. And um, septic um, injuries of various sorts, as well as the tropical diseases and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think the age spectrum will be very different to what we see in the UK, where, of course, most of our hospital patients are elderly. So, and from, from what you said then, I think you're going to be getting through quite a lot of ketamine one way or another. 
<laughs> I think that's certainly the case. Yes. Has has that been used on your previous missions? Is it is it available locally, or have you have you only used stuff that you've taken with you? Uh, so we didn't use much ketamine um, when for our missions, mostly because we aren't that familiar with using it. Um, but it is certainly available locally. Um, and Eric, the local anaesthetist we were working with, um, is certainly use ket uses ketamine a lot. So now let me just go back to something I'm always banging on about, which is what I call the anaesthesia compass, hence, hence the rather odd name for this podcast. Um, for listeners who don't know what the anaesthesia compass is, then please go back and listen to the first podcast in the whole series, and that will explain it. The differences between patients, anaesthetists, kit, and drugs that you find when you go and work in a low and middle income country. Um, we've talked so far about the patients, Karen, but who's actually going to be giving the anaesthetics? Because it, it, there, there won't be a foreigner uh, like you or me uh, there for 52 weeks a year. Uh, is there somebody? Yes. So I don't know for certain the answer to this question. Um, uh, Eric, the nurse anaesthetist who worked with us on each of our most recent uh, missions, um, is a nurse anaesthetist from Wenchi Hospital, further to the slightly further to the south, um, and he may be working in the new hospital. Um, I do know that the um, Empowerment Association um, do have an excellent track record in. Um, staffing their projects and training people, local people, to staff their projects. Um, and it has been one of the major challenges of taking on this role, not knowing exactly who um, we're going to be working with, essentially. Um, because I would much prefer to work directly with them on some of these decisions. Um, and that's one reason to try and make what we supply as flexible as possible so that it can be adapted by whoever is there on the ground to, um, to meet their needs as best possible. Eric himself is an excellent practical anaesthetist. Um, he does have a master's in anaesthesia, um, but was never been trained as a physician. Um, and in fact, one of the big problems for nurse anaesthetists in this area is that it's very, very rare for any physician anaesthetist to go to the area. Um, and so there are very limited opportunities for development. Um, he has been extremely um, keen to learn. He comes to join us during his holidays, essentially, and generally has to work many nights in a row um, in order to kind of earn the time off to come and join us. Um, so he has been hugely dedicated and I, we have definitely learned as much or more from him as he has learned from us when we've been there. And we're hoping he'll be there in the new hospital, but we don't know that for certain yet. But he'll certainly need some help. And probably the, the, the helpers may well be people who are less well-trained than he is. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, uh, always strikes me is that when, when you go out, uh, I know you're a, a fully trained, well-trained specialist. And that means that actually whatever kit, drugs is there, you could give safe anesthesia with it because you're an expert. Uh, but someone with a much lower degree of training probably needs a much more limited range of recipes that they can safely apply to do the majority of cases with techniques that might not necessarily be ideally suited to each individual case, but are suited to their talents and, and knowledge. Are there plans for 
specialist surgeons to go out uh, and do uh, what people call camps. In other words, you, you go and do maybe a lot of fistulas or uh, a lot of cataracts or you know, a lot of ENT at one time. Uh, and if so, how do you think those things can be covered anesthetically? Yeah, this is one of the other challenges. Um, I think um, that the vision is that there will be more specialist types of um, surgery happening in camps at various times through the year. Um, I know that there have been conversations with Operation Smile, for instance, um, and I certainly think that we'd be looking at further hernia camps potentially. Um, but there are lots of challenges with that because um, the work of the hospital itself will need to carry on <laughs> um, when the when the people when external people are there, um, as well as providing uh, space for doing uh, more specialist stuff. Um, and then the issue becomes whether you need to provide any equipment that will be more familiar to foreign anaesthetists, for instance, since I'm looking at the anaesthetics side. Um, and I've been thinking quite a lot about this. And um, my feeling is that it would be much better to actually make sure that the equipment we provide is robust and will last and will suit um, the people who are there all the time because it's their hospital um, and they need to be leading it and asking when they want other people to come in and saying when they don't. Um, and that um, perhaps if we're providing slightly less familiar kit, the way to go is to make sure that we do a proper induction for any anaesthetists that are going out to make sure they are familiar with the kit that will be there. Um, this is also partly why I'm keen to potentially have a intravenous anesthesia arm to the anesthetic provision um, because that can be run fairly independently of um, any anesthetic machine complications or otherwise um, and may provide uh, a way for external anesthetists to feel comfortable um, but this still requires a lot of thought I think. Yeah I, I entirely agree that uh, external anesthetists uh, need to be carefully selected and carefully prepared. Um, the tendency has been in some places in the past, you know, for a, 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 an ambitious surgeon to come out and bring their own anaesthetist from home. And these people are absolutely hopeless unless they have exactly the same facilities as, as they get at home. And it, it not only that, uh, but it can be very negative for the local staff uh, when people come in as, as you know, the, this, this man is the world expert. Uh, this is how you should be doing things. And if you don't do things the way I do them, then you're not doing them properly. Uh, that just doesn't fit in with anyone's idea of, of development. So uh, I know for a long time, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières uh, had an anesthesia manual. It was a very small manual. It's written by uh, Eric Vreed. And they were absolutely didactic. If you come with MSF, you will anesthetize with ketamine, full stop, essentially is what it said. Um, and if you're not prepared to do that, please don't come. Um, but obviously these things have to be handled, dipl handled diplomatically and, and uh, uh, carefully uh, so that we don't unnecessarily upset people. But uh, I think you know, the, uh, the, the problem is someone who can only work with a certain special set of kit that they only can find in, in Canada or the UK or, or wherever else. 
Um, you told me that at the, at the moment, there's only uh, Eric, um, and he's got four oper operating theatres, so that sounds great. So you can have one as a lounge, one as a, a snooker room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully there, there will be more of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's going to need weekends off and holidays. He's need to, uh, may need, feel the need to go down to the pub and have a few beers from time to time. And if you're completely solo, that puts a lot of strain on people. Do you know any more details of what, about what the plan might be to bring or train more Ghanaian anaesthetists? I don't directly, um, but as I mentioned, um, uh, and I need to find out some more fairly urgently, but the, uh, the NEA does have a very good record on um, training people for its projects. Um, and so I think really what I need to do is find out a bit more about exactly what the plan is. Um, I know that the uh, hospital is already uh, sort of registered with the Ghanaian authorities. Um, and so as I understand it, all the nursing staff will be allocated centrally. So we'll come from uh, the Ghanaian government effectively. Um, so, and I don't know whether that includes anesthesia as well or not at the moment. No, I, I don't know, maybe you do whether there is a, a, an official qualification for anaesthetic nurses in Ghana. Uh, I haven't come across any, but they may well be there. Um, I don't know either, um, but that's clearly something we need to know. Yeah. Uh, coming back for a moment to equipment, you, you mentioned the problem about equipment deteriorating when it, it doesn't get used for 50 weeks in a row. Um, and assuming that the plan for four theatres go, goes ahead and, and you're not using them all to start with, it could be a mistake to order lots of equipment that isn't going to be used initially. Uh, you know, apart from deterioration, uh, if you buy, I don't know, a diathermy machine uh, and don't use it for three years, and then it needs a spare part, you might not be able to get that spare part because the machine, you know, in, in the way things go, may well have become obsolete by then. Um, and it's particularly true with oxygen concentrators because uh, if your concentrator is in a humid environment and isn't being used, then the zeolite can get damp. And if the zeolite gets damp, there's absolutely nothing you can do to restore the function of it. So that's, that, that's a strategic thing. But of course, foreign aid budgets and, and donors don't want to hear about projects that continue to need support. They like to front load their projects. So they say, here's a lump of money, get everything you need and don't ever come back to us. Um. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, the, um, the, uh, the, the background to this project um, means that there has been a considerable amount of fundraising that's gone on over actually many years now, um, decades even, um, largely um, in Canada and North America. And there are many um, committed long-term uh, backers and donors to this project um, and so I would certainly hope and expect that there will be ongoing support um, for this development project in future years. The oxygen concentrator side of thing is interesting. When I first went out, which was three years ago now, um, there was an oxygen concentrator already there that had obviously been stored um, from year to year. Um, and we're certainly still producing um, oxygen. In fact, last year we took out a oxygen monitor 
to see what the, how much oxygen it was actually producing. Um, and it was more than it wasn't up to the sort of 95% uh, concentration that you would expect from someone that was new, but it was well over 60% um, at a decent flow rate. Um, so, uh, and that had had absolutely no maintenance in between the times that had been gone out. Um, since we took another one out, um, Eric now goes over every couple of months and turns them on um, to make sure that they are run um, uh, regularly. Yeah. Um, more but there had been no awareness of that before. It, it's more important to do that during the humid season, during the rainy season, um, mm. because when they're running, they will dry themselves out uh, to a certain extent. But once they get completely saturated, they can't do that anymore. So uh, uh, if it's the dry season, he probably doesn't need to go at all. If it's the rainy season, he might need you know, if, to get someone to do it. Uh, once a week it's only turning a switch on and off so you know even if there's just a caretaker there or one of the teachers in the school uh, maybe ask them to do it yeah that's right I it, it was um, but there was certainly been no, had been no awareness that, that needed to be done before um, before I went out so now you told me before that uh, Eric has also been trained to, to give total intravenous anesthesia and I know that's uh, uh, that's one of your favorite sorts of anesthetic um, I, I, I have told you this story, but I haven't told the, the listeners before uh, that I convened a meeting uh, at a European Congress once to discuss uh, how we were going to cope in the developing world when all anesthesia had become intravenous anesthesia, as was about to happen. And uh, that meeting took place in 1980, which shows how completely useless I am at, uh, at predicting the future. But there are possibly particularly uh, particular logistical problems with intravenous uh, anesthesia in terms, I, it seems to me, of, of consumables and the, the plastics, uh, syringes and tubing and so on, and also supply of the drugs. Do you know whether all those consumables are actually available uh, in Ghana? Uh, so um, I know that the supply of propofol is pretty good. Uh, in fact, one of the comments that um, Eric made when he was working with us um, was that at least he'd be able to use up all the propofol that they had now um, in that they get they get <laughs> they were certainly getting more propofol than they were able to use um, at that point. Um, the, the the thing about the lines and stuff, it, I don't know at the moment. Um, and I'll, I'll have to investigate that and see whether it's a it's a realistic possibility or not. The my um my concern um is really to do with um sustainability in that certainly in my hospital in northampton we are moving really at a reasonable rate now from using lots and lots of volatile agents to using more intravenous anesthesia mostly driven by the um potential greenhouse gas effects of the um volatile agents so the whole sustainability kind of um, uh, background um, means that I'm really keen that we don't lock a new hospital into um, a, a type of anesthesia that we're moving away from because of its potential damage to the environment. Um, but I agree with Mike, it requires significant more 
thought and work <laughs> if we're going to go down this path. And I wouldn't go down that path on its own. It would have to be an extra, an alternative, not the only way. Yes, indeed. And, and, and there are problems with, with any uh, technical approach and, you know, vaporizers are always a maintenance problem, uh, which you can't get around and except by having total intravenous anesthesia. So, you, you know, you solve one problem with that, but uh, uh, hopefully won't produce another. It must make you feel really welcome when you arrive and someone says, oh, thank goodness you're here, Karen. Now we can get rid of all that wretched propofol. <laughs> Um, thanks ever so much for talking to us today. Um, I'm sure this will generate quite a number of questions and uh, people listening to the podcast are always welcome to feed in their questions and I'll pass them back to you and people will want to know how the project is, is getting on. Do you think that the COVID crisis has been a significant setback in terms of planning and getting things going? Um as far as I can tell, not for the building work. I mean, um, it's again, the one of the big um, uh, ideas really behind the NEA is, is sustainability. Uh, so all the workers on the project have been local. Uh, the bricks are all being made on site, for instance. Um, and as far as I can tell, work has carried on pretty much without um, interruption. There may be um, other problems in that, for instance, I think with the... Um, with uh, Brexit, we don't actually have any trading agreement with Ghana now. So we're on World Trade Organization terms, as far as I know. Um, and there has been a little bit of political instability um, as well with um, uh, a finely balanced parliament at the moment. So whether those will have an effect, I don't know. So, well, when it comes to ordering equipment, if you if you go to Diamedica, uh, you'll find that Robert is used to sending stuff absolutely anywhere in the world, Somaliland, uh, DRC, Mali. Uh, I'm sure none of those have trading equipments with us, so uh, uh, trading agreements with us, um, but they, they seem to manage to get th things through. So don't uh, don't be too disheartened with that. Well, we, we are at the, um, the, the equipment of the hospital has been um... Uh, given to uh, Medical Aid International. So Tim Beacon is going to be organising most of it. Excellent. Good. Thanks ever so much for being with us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure everyone's interested and uh, enjoyed listening to you, if not to me yet again. <laughs> Bye-bye for now. <laughs> Thanks very much, Mike. Bye then. Thanks, Karen, for being with us today on the podcast. And thank you to all of you who have been listening. We look forward to talking to you again in a week's time on the Anesthesia Compass podcast. Do remember to subscribe to this channel and tell your friends about it as well. But for now, from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.